0: Father, we thank you that we know who the King of Kings is and we know that he's coming back. And thank you that we have the series now where we're thinking about that and what a kind of timely subject to be going through in these days that we're living in. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you gave him. We thank you that he rose again from the dead, having won the victory. And we thank you that someday we will live with him forever. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're aware, but another institution kind of bit the dust this week. We, we had to suffer through the loss of um, uh, some things that we, some of us have grown up with. Um, Aunt Jemima is no more. Her family was against getting rid of her, but some people took offense for her, so she's gone. And I don't know if you remember that uh, the commercial, that jingle? But there was only one thing worse in the universe, and it happened. Hmm. And then, of course, the Washington Redskins. Some people, uh, Native Americans, really took pride in the Washington Redskins in that logo. Um, of course, some other people took offense. They are no more. But then this week, I always thought Trader Joe was a nice guy. I really did. I thought he was a nice guy. I thought he was just a guy who traveled around the world and he found something in Bangkok. And he decided to put it in the store. He found something in India and he put it in the store. And I mean, we got to share that with him, right? Turns out now he's an imperialist guy, you know? And he's been wrong and evil this whole time. We didn't know that, did we? The face of things is changing. And what's so interesting is that it's been happening for such a long time, but it's sort of like a wake-up call now. Because of the way things are changing, we're getting to see what really has been at work. And it kind of brings us back to some things that really we need to think about as being, you know, what is the essence of life? What is the essence of uh, living in this country? And we have a blessing in that the essence we know is not that we are Americans or Indians or Chinese or Vietnamese. We belong to a New Kingdom. And that's sort of what we've been talking about when we think about Jesus Christ. We belong to a different kingdom. We have a Lord. We have someone who we can talk about. We are supposed to be His ambassadors. And it's just kind of interesting, though, this whole wake-up call that's been going on. You know, when I went to college, I had a plant in my room. I never thought I would get into college, but uh, they let me in anyway. And I had a jade plant in a pot. And um, it was basically the only decoration I had. And the funny thing about the jade plant was it never grew. It never died, but it never grew. And so the jade plant and I were good with each other. And I kind of liked having that jade plant there because it reminded me that there were things in the universe that had lower IQs than I did at that point. I was taking remedial English. I was taking remedial math. But I had my jade plant. I named him Isaiah. And there he was. You know, it wasn't like back then, like it is now. I would have just Googled how to grow a jade plant, you know. But you didn't have that back then, so you didn't know what to do with it. But I just, yeah, I'd water it and whatever, and it was just there. Well, one day this guy walks into the room, and he walks up to me, next to me while I'm studying there, and he says, hey, what's that? And he takes Isaiah and he lifts him out of the pot Isaiah had no roots. I didn't know that. How in the world was that thing living? Or if it had a root, it was just like one little root and you couldn't even see it. You couldn't identify with it. And he put it right back in its place. It's like, what? How did that happen? You, you... I didn't know what he did. But what occurred to me was this. Isaiah died green. <laughs> It was there, and I didn't realize what was going on under the surface, but there was something wrong with that plant, and eventually, two weeks after he did that, it died. Now, I will say this uh, just because this is part of my DNA. If any of you leave on vacation and you would like me to come in, don't ask me to look after your plants. Uh, the appropriate thing to do is, Dan, would you come over and see that my plants die? And I would be happy to do that for you. Because I have the black thumb, I think, of death for plants. But you know what? It occurred to me, and this was the interesting thing, that Isaiah was sitting there all that time, and it had no root. It had nothing for it actually to grow in and become strong with. And you know, I think what we're seeing in our culture is that we have lost our root. We're seeing things happen now that we would never have imagined happening, and they're happening. Um, COVID-19, that's almost like the least of our worries. Defund the police and all this other stuff going on. Cancel culture. It's so bad that even Hollywood is against cancel culture now. But how did we get to that place? We lost. The culture lost its root. C.S. Lewis, everybody knows C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book way back when, and what he said in that book was, there is no basis for morality or value, basically, other than God. So the most convenient thing for man to do is to get rid of it. Why should you die for anything? Why should you live for anything? If truth is all relative, and see, the thing is, way back when, when he wrote that book on education, He could see it happening in Great Britain. The thing that we haven't seen is it's been happening here for years. And ironically, the name of that book is called The Abolition of Man. Because morality at the end of the line is only based in a creator who says, thou shalt not or thou shall. You take him away. And even if we have a good time society like we have, we've been surfing. It's been wonderful, right? Since the 60s and 70s and 80s, we've just been surfing on top of this thing, never realizing that underneath, we were losing any kind of hold or root that we would have. That brings us to today. Now, the reason I'm mentioning that isn't because I'm trying to be a sociologist or anything. It's because this has also happened to the church. And you've had guys like Barna and others and uh, the Rainiers and everybody talking about the fact that we've lost things, but really, what have we lost? Have we ever sensed that we've lost anything? I mean, one thing, you know, I'm an old-timer now. I never intended to become an old-timer, but it kind of sneaks up on you. Um, how many crusades... Or, or national things have we had in Christianity since the 80s? Uh, remember, Here's Life America. That was Bill Bright and Campus Crusade and all that. And then there was a Jesus movie and that. Well, you know, who cares? Maybe people nowadays don't respond that same way. But it just sure, sure seems to me like nothing took its place. Praise bands. I mean, that's big. Um, I don't know, Right. And they've talked about biblical illiteracy, and people get tired of hearing that. They talk about we haven't been making disciples. People get tired of that. But what is the essence? What is the essence? What should we do? Is there something that we need to do that we can do? Uh, you know, talking with the youth um, last couple of weeks has sort of been the thing. What would happen if we hit ground zero right now and they just closed down all the churches? I mean, they've done that in other countries, but we can't imagine that ever happening here, right? But what if it did? Where would the praise bands be? Okay, everybody, we're meeting over at the Blander House. we got a praise band of 16 people in there. We can take two visitors because they're also so small. No. If we went to house churches, you would be happy to have one guitar player in your house church. And a lot of house churches would be singing a cappella. That's how they do it in other cultures. But see, we would never imagine that. What is the essence of church? What is the essence of our relationship? And I'm only suggesting all of this because I think that with COVID-19 and everything else, it's sort of a wake-up call. Wake up for the culture. Wake up for people who haven't even considered God to say, how is it that we're losing our roots? Uh, These things that I thought were down here 20 feet deep, they're not here anymore. How can we just defund the police and cancel culture? How did that happen? Those people are asking questions. And for us as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, for us as people who know Him, who only have really one job on the planet, maybe we need to wake up too and say, what is the essential quality of my life with Jesus Christ? Is it big church? Is it the whipped cream? Or is it something very plain that so if the bomb hit, I would be able to get up and I could do my master's work right now. And I don't have to be an American to do it. I don't have to be from South America. I don't have to be anything. I belong to a different kingdom. What is the essential part of that? Now, what we're talking about with regard to the tribulation, these people are feeling it deeply at this point. And before I, I go into talking about the, the second beast, I thought it would be good just to put, I like timelines, so I put this timeline up here. And I just want to kind of walk you to where we are right now. Because, see, this has become the major wake-up call for the earth. And the first three and a half years were really that wake-up call. If people didn't think the alarm was real, they knew it in the first three and a half years. In the first three and a half years, you had the seals, you had the trumpets, which basically reduced the world pretty much to rubble. But it was still functional. And what was happening here that we don't see, if we do just a superficial reading of Revelation, is that these... Two witnesses in Jerusalem were a prominent factor of the entire three and a half years. Because when they die, what we know is that the world celebrates because all of the ruin that happened on earth was because these guys were calling it down on the earth, just like Moses and Aaron called it down on Egypt. So these people are really happy. There are a lot of things that could not happen on the earth because these two witnesses were there. But it was still a terrible time. But it was because of the prominence, because it was in Jerusalem, people had to think about God. They had to think about God. This is no accident that these things are happening and that those two guys are walking around Jerusalem. That is a dominant factor of those first three and a half years. But something happens. And what happens is that there is a fight in heaven. And in that fight in heaven, Satan gets thrown out. Now these chapters, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, they're kind of like chapters that could be spread out in different ways. But it's interesting that they're they're all being mentioned right here. And of course, it's chronological order. I mean, we could all figure that one out. But the point is, is that some of these events haven't really happened yet, but identities maybe are already known. Because, for example, the Antichrist, Pavan did a wonderful job talking about him last week, right? But he's been around for three and a half years, but maybe you didn't know it. But it says that he will make a strong covenant with them for one week, seven years, that he is the Antichrist, the beast out of the sea. He's been around, but he doesn't take on the dimension that he has here until you get to the three-and-a-half-year point, until Satan gets thrown out of heaven, and then something breaks. Satan has to be able to defeat those two guys, and God allows it to happen. And he removes them. Until they are removed, the Antichrist cannot take prominence. He is not allowed... I mean, he doesn't have the, the power that he would have in Jerusalem with those two guys running around. It makes sense. Once they're dead, the Antichrist can stand up in the temple and declare himself to be God. So, the first three and a half years are really important. Chapter 12 is a fight. And it talks about Satan being defeated, but this defeat is going to take a while to be absolutely complete. It will take all the way up to chapter 19 and further. But at that fight in chapter 12, Satan gets thrown out of heaven. And then there's the eagle. I think it's an eagle? Mm -hmm. That says, beware to those on earth because he knows his time is short. And knowing his time is short, he ratchets everything up or whatever for that last three and a half years. And so you have... This beast of uh, the Antichrist rising to prominence. Now, I'm sure that there were people before that who knew who he was, but now they really know who he is because he will stand up in the temple. And he will desecrate the temple. And there will be an image set up in the temple. And he will declare himself to be God. The interesting thing is the first three and a half years actually have a religious tone. The second three and a half years definitely have a religious tone. But it's in the other direction. And so then, we're going to be talking in chapter 13 today about the second beast. And this is the beast from the land. But what I I want you to see is that it's happening here because of these events that have happened right before this. The death of the two witnesses that God allows to be taken, uh, then Satan being thrown out of heaven, and now you have these guys, the Antichrist and his prophets. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to chapter 13, or I just put the, the slides up there because I thought that would be easy for everyone to take a look at. So it says, Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. I mean, don't you love the imagery here? It's like, uh, this is why in Germany they refer, actually they have a um, uh, kind of a motto about things that are hard to understand, but it really applies here. In Germany, Revelation is a book with seven seals. In other words, why even try to understand it? So, then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. Okay, so the first beast rose out of the sea. Now, the reason that they say this is the first beast has some kind of Gentile origin is because we're looking, if you look at Revelation, uh, Daniel chapter 7, that's where the stirring up occurs, and the beast comes out of the sea. Okay, The second beast here, it says, came out of the land, or out of the earth. And most commentators will say that this guy then could be a Jew. And there's some things about this that make it look like that would be possible. I'm I'm not sure, but I'm just going to draw them out a little bit. Two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Whether or not that the two horns mean two kings, nobody's sure of that. The imagery of a lamb gives you kind of the idea of gentleness. The worship in Jerusalem would have been oriented around sacrifice. He looked like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Uh, speaking like a dragon, the best way probably to understand that is go back to the garden and consider how Satan spoke to Eve. Not directly in terms of telling her the implication of what she would be doing, but deceitfully. And the whole image here is that two witnesses have been done away with, and everybody on earth knew who those two witnesses were and who they represented. And there is a spiritual vacuum now, and Satan will step into that spiritual vacuum. He will bring in his man the Antichrist, the son of perdition, and that man will have a second, and that will be the false prophet, also becoming a religious thing unto itself. In other words, what Satan is doing is imitating what God did. I don't know if you understand business plans. I don't understand anything about business. I mean, the worst thing I could ever do is go into business for myself. But they say that the McDonald's model of business has been emulated. And the the way they decide... Where to set up a McDonald's is they do demographics. They look at the, the communities that are growing around there and those communities are going to sustain growth. They look at the traffic patterns on the highways and all of that kind of stuff. And then taking all of that research into consideration, they decide where the McDonald's is going to be. The Burger King method of business is they find out where the McDonald's is. And they build within sight of it if possible. And see, this is exactly what Satan's doing. There was something about those two witnesses that got people's attention. There was a harvest, even in that dark time that was going on. And all he is doing now is mimicking it. He is bringing in someone who looks like a lamb, someone who might look religious. When Antiochus Epiphanes, the foregoer of the Antichrist in the book of Daniel, When he took over the temple there, he actually had priests who were helping him. False priests, bad priests, trying to talk to the people and help them understand why they should worship Antiochus. He's going to be doing exactly the same thing. So there are a lot of people who feel that this guy could be a Jew, and this is a very religious thing that's being set up here. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence or on its behalf. So it's serving, this false prophet is actually serving the first beast. The Antichrist has come into the temple, and I don't know if this was on uh, national TV or or world TV or what it was, I don't know how they'll do it back then, but he declares himself to be God. He has destroyed the two witnesses. Ah, It takes some muscle to do that, doesn't it? Right? And he's saying... Apparently, that this was all wrong, I am the one who deserves worship. Boy, who does that sound like? You know, what's also interesting is that in the Bible, there are two people or two things you know of that were personally possessed, taken over by Satan himself. The serpent and Judas Iscariot, who is called the son of perdition. Interestingly enough, when you look at Judas, you can see two different Portions in the Gospel of John where it says that Satan entered Judah. So apparently, you know, he was free to come and go. Because the Antichrist is also called the son of perdition, it is believed that he is possessed by Satan. This is Satan basically wearing his clothes, standing out and saying what he has always wanted to say, you worship me. Just like that. Now, the false prophet is going to make that So, He makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, Pavan mentioned this last week, and it really is a question. When does this happen? I don't think it happens the first three and a half years. I think, there, you know, there's probably a bunch of Christian rednecks, or there wouldn't be Christian rednecks, there were whatever kind of rednecks back then, who figured out who this guy was. He takes prominence, and they whack him. I mean, this is what, uh, who is it? Dietrich Barnhofer tried to do, right? He tried to kill Hitler. I mean, he and a bunch of guys plotted to kill Hitler and went south. Didn't work. It's going to work for these guys. They're going to pull it off, except for the fact that, and this is where the other thing comes into play, if the Antichrist is really possessed by Satan, I mean, he's like right in there to do instant healing. You know, he doesn't have to bring him back to life. It's like, When you see demoniacs in the New Testament, I mean, some of these guys are like ninjas, right? That one guy who takes out ten of the sons of this one priest? he leaves I mean, how does one guy strip ten guys and they're running away naked and bruised and beaten? And what about the guy who wrenched his chains apart? Boy, wouldn't that hurt? How many years would that take to wrench the chains apart and take a yoke... Or fetters made out of oak and bang them down so often that they break. These guys had incredible strength. And anyway, the idea is that Satan is possessing the Antichrist. So when he gets this mortal wound, it won't kill him. Somehow he'll knit it all back together. I don't know if it's like a sword coming in one end and going out the other, you know, uh, like in Halloween things. But anyway, he'll survive it. And that becomes a sign to all men. It's, it's written a few different times here that people, because it, it just mentions it, they will be impressed by this mortal wound. They'll be impressed by the fact that he didn't die. I remember Walter Martin saying, you know, you could talk about God and talk about the creation all you want and all the great miracles he did in the Bible. But then, if somebody's in a seance and Satan raises a pencil six inches off the table, they'll go, oh! And that's what they're going to do then. Because they are going to see things they have never seen before. And they will be lying signs and wonders in the fact that, not that they're not wonders, they're taking people in the wrong direction. So he is going to be there. And this beast out of the land, this prophet, is going to be telling everyone on the earth they need to worship the Antichrist. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men, which, by the way, happens in Job. Satan did it then. And by the signs which is, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, bidding them make an image for the beast, which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Oh, don't forget that one. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. All of this is saying, basically, Satan is on fire. He is making things happen. Now, in all this confusion, in all this confusion, you you notice that two times it says he's allowed to do that. Now, I'm not very smart, but I know that if God allows him to do it, then God is still really in charge, right? Right? And in the earlier part of this chapter, it also uses the word allow two different times. God is allowing this to happen. The book of Daniel, chapter 1. The Babylonians come into Jerusalem and they ransack the temple. Oh, by the way, God gave Nebuchadnezzar that victory. It's the same word. And then Daniel, he and his buddies are in this mess. I mean, they want to honor God, but everybody's eating pork chops. All the boys that they grew up with are eating pork chops, and and they don't know what to do. But Daniel says, no, we're not going to do it. And he goes up to this guy and he says, can we eat vegetables? God gave. It's the same word. Daniel. Favor in the eyes of this guy. And at the end of their education, when they appear before Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar looks at him and he says, boy, these guys got it going on. They're like ten times better than everybody else. Because God gave them understanding. God's still in charge. And for the people who have to live through this, wow, this scripture is going to be really important to them. Because no matter what is happening, God is allowing it. Now, one thing about this that's interesting, just to, just to think about here, um, I want to make sure it's not in these verses. It also causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy, buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, this is a little bit of a conundrum here. Because people will be compelled to get this mark, the name of the beast, either on their forehead or on their hand. And the thing about this is that we know not everyone is going to do that. Because when you have the, at the end of the tribulation here, you have the judgment of the sheep and the goats. There are a lot of sheep. No one who gets this mark will go to heaven. No one who gets this mark, I mean, they can try tattoo removal or any of that stuff. No one who gets this thing will be allowed into heaven. That's how serious this is. That's how serious the deception is here. People have to make a decision. And if they are people with no chest, they are people with no morality. If it's just like, you know, because here's the idea too. The armies that come against the Antichrist at the end, they have probably all received the mark of the beast, but they don't worship him. Back in those days, you know, when we talk about Babylon or, or or even Israel or the northern kingdom, they worship many gods. It's like, ah, okay, we'll sign allegiance to this one too. Yeah, whatever, it'll get the government off of our back. That's what people will be doing during that time. Just because they see wonders doesn't mean, or they worship the beast doesn't mean, that they're going to have a great allegiance to him. You realize that when Jesus walked on the water and he got into the boat and the boat came to land, it said, all in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God, including Judas. Hey, you can get over worship real quick. And that's what the world's going to do. But if you take that mark on your forehead or your hand, you will not go to heaven. And there will be lots of people on the earth who are going to make the decision not to do that. And they are not all going to be hunted down because when Jesus divides the sheep from the goats, one nation from the other, there will be a good hefty group on his right hand who he says, Come, O blessed of my Father, and enter the kingdom that has been set aside for you from the foundation of the world. That's a good thing to know, isn't it? And the other guys who get the mark of the beast, depart from me, you cursed, into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Don't swear allegiance to him. So not everyone, but most people will do this. Just like the examples Jesus gave. Uh, Enter by the narrow way because most people are going to go the other way. And this is going to be Fleshing that out for people. But here's the deal. We already have the Scripture. They will have this written so they can make their decision. How many people are going to make the wrong decision? How many people are going to be kind of like, Oh, I don't know. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast for it is a human number. Its number is 666. Please do not... This is not your homework assignment. Don't go home and try to figure this out. People have been trying this for years. I mean, it was Hitler. It was uh, Stalin. Uh, It it was Henry Kissinger when I was growing up. And I don't know anything about Henry, you know? But I'm just saying, don't do it. But the people during the tribulation, this might actually be good for them to figure it out ahead of time. The wise will. God will make sure they get it. But hey, when the three and a half year point hits, it will be the guy walking out of the temple who sets up that image and saying, worship me. False prophet will be saying, worship him. So, whoever that hymn is, that will be the Antichrist. The one thing about the the image uh, that is set up, that is able to speak, that's able to actually prophesy in a way and say, hey, if somebody's not worshiping the Antichrist, go kill him. Again, some commentators find that one easier to understand just in the sense that if it's possessed by a demon, if it's demonized, then that demon can do whatever he's told to do move its mouth, you know, whatever. So, that is what the world will look like. So you have, at this point, two men. Two men have just died. And at that point, the world has been focused on seeing the God of Israel and their Messiah. And people have been coming to Christ. And the 144,000 are still roaming the earth and doing their thing. When those two men die, Satan will swap it out really quick. Because he will show dominant power that he was able, or the Antichrist was able to kill these two men, but we know that God allows that to happen. And then he will stand there and he will have this guy working signs and wonders saying, yeah, worship him. And this is how we're going to unify the world. You go get that mark on your hand or on your forehead and we're all good. And it won't be good. There's one other place where the false prophet comes up, and I think that's in Revelation 16 or 17, probably 16, where the bowls are poured out. And the bowls are really an important judgment. They, they won't happen right away. It'll look like Satan is able to bring some semblance, uh, semblance of order to the world, but then the bowls come, and these are totally bowls of God's wrath on mankind. That's right. And it says in one of these that Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, will all three of them will breathe out some kind of demonic spirits that will dry up the Euphrates and allow the king of the East to come and attack the Holy Land. So that's, I think, the last time. Oh, by the way, I mean, talk about privilege, right? I mean, yeah, this is bad stuff that's happening, but I feel like I ought to share this with you since I was the guy who got to do the second beast. The first two inhabitants of hell? The first and second beast? They get there before Satan does. Isn't that great? Not. Satan has no friends. He has no allies. He helps no one. Every, like Jesus said, there's no truth in him at all. Even when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature. So, what do we do with all of this? I would say it is time to wake up. I think this whole thing with COVID is a wake-up call. I think what's happening in our culture is a wake-up call. Uh, for these people, they... Lord help them. They're going to have the scripture. It is going to be an intense seven years for anyone who knows Jesus Christ uh, as their as the Messiah of the Jews, but they will know him as their Lord and Savior. And so here's the thing to realize: Jesus is coming. Okay. Um, one of our distinctives as brethren is that we believe His coming is imminent. That means it could happen at any time. It could happen tonight. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen. And you know, Jesus says this a couple of different times. He says, therefore be alert. You know not the hour. You don't even know the day that your Master is coming. Your Master is coming. Do we think in terms like that? We have to start thinking in terms like that. We have to start living as if we're living in front of Him, and He's watching, and we're serving Him back because of His love. He is coming, and we need to be ready. Blessed is that servant who, when his master comes, is awake, who, when his master knocks, is available right then. I mean, you know, excited to open the door for him right then when he knocks. That's how excited you are. And I know that's hard for any of us to get carried away with, but that's true. He is coming. And that should give us great hope. It also gives us great responsibility. We live for His kingdom. (sighs) We live for His kingdom, not for the United States of America. I mean, they can take away all of these icons, all of these idols I grew up with. I don't belong to this earth. I belong to Jesus Christ. I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So you want to ask me about what being a white male is all about? I will tell you what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. And the fact that He is coming back. And the fact that if we don't do something about our sin, if we don't turn to Him... We are going to have an eternity that is going to be absolutely hell. Where we will be paying for the price of our sin. He died for us. That is what we need to relate to people. All the other stuff is fine. I, it, you can burn an American flag in front of me. I will tell you that is wrong to do that. It's actually against the law. But you know what? My allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And for that, I will not fight, but I'm willing to die. Right? Because that's what, in Revelation, he will be having his people do. They will be going. If they are to be killed, they will be killed. And the Lord is watching, and he allows that to happen. And then we need to think about what in the world is the essence of our lives as Christians. You realize that, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be, uh, um, uh, how can I say it? If you take away everything right now, put us in the position of some countries, people will scatter. They won't know what to do. If they can't go to a big church, if, if the big church has to close because it no longer has tax exemptions. I remember being in this one church one time, and somebody was saying they needed $800,000 a month to come in to keep that baby afloat. $800,000 a month. Boom. If we get reduced to the position of a third world country, that thing closes, and then what does your Christianity become? And you know what Jesus said? Where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst that's all we need. That's the basis of a church plant where two or three are gathered in My name. There am I in the midst. And if you understand that Scripture, you understand He's talking about spiritual authority. If two or three of you on earth agree on anything that you ask for, it shall be done to you. Why? Because you're trying to do My will. You're trying to tell people. You're trying to get in the way. You're trying to make disciples. What is the essence? What does that look like? Where two or three are gathered in My name. And you can take the name away from a church, no matter who they are, River Point or First Colony Bible Chapel, but there are still believers who can meet in somebody's living room, and they can still be doing the work of God, just like they do it in other countries. That's the essence. And then the essence for you personally... And see, this is where when Jesus tells one of these parables, he said, the seed grew up quickly and it it immediately had joy, but it had no root. It had no root like my little plant, unfortunately. What is your root? Who makes you who you are? And we broke bread this morning talking about the eminence of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes us who we are. And so we need to grow deeply into Him. Our only commission says that we need to make disciples of all nations. That's basically telling lost people that Jesus came and we make them disciples who can make disciples. Being a disciple is the essence of being a Christian. And Stan used that scripture this morning. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke... Upon you. You can't do this unless you're willing to take His yoke upon you. How many Christians are not willing to bear a yoke that said, if He says I do it, I do it. If He says this is what I need to do with my time, this is what I need to do with my time. If He says I need to stop doing that, I will stop doing it because I wear His yoke that He gave me out of love. If you don't wear His yoke, You cannot be his disciple. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is not learn from John Piper about me. This is not learn from Max Licato about me. This is sit at my feet, in my word, and learn from me. Now, unfortunately, I raised my voice and all that because he says, I'm gentle and lowly and you'll find rest for your souls. So here's my... Assignment for you. Assignment America. Assignment Chapel. You know, this COVID time is probably going to drag on for about another year. I know. I don't like it either, but it's probably going to. So do this in your COVID time. Memorize John chapter 13 through 17, the Upper Room Discourse. Go ahead and memorize that. What amazing... Last words Jesus left for His disciples. What amazing last words. Jesus, before the Passover, Jesus knowing that his time had come to depart to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And you see what He did in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. Our focus is not on God. Our focus is Jesus. Believe also in me. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit, my Father takes away, but every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it can bear more fruit. Chapter 16, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They're going to put you out of the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who put you to death will consider that they are doing service for God. And that ends with, My peace, I leave you. I have overcome the world. And then chapter 17 is Jesus' prayer. And what a wonderful prayer that is. Fill your hearts with Him. That is the essence And that will get you through whatever upheavals happen here. And these people who are living through these end times, that is what will sustain them for that final day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. So often in the upper room, Jesus said, I am telling you these things before they happen so that when they happen, you will believe, so that when they happen, you will not fall away, so that when they happen, you will find a peace that passes understanding. And these are the same things that you're telling us. This world wake-up call is not an accident right now. You're allowing this to happen for the world to see that without you, there is no hope. There's no basis for morality. There's no basis for normal. There's no basis for sanity, for anything. But... Peter says, judgment begins with the house of God. And if you're doing this to us, imagine what it's going to be like for them. Help us to get in shape. Help us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to carry our torches high, to be energetic, to be in love, to be motivated, to be excited about the fact that he's coming back, and then to take that light into a lost world. We just thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your Word. Amen.